good morning. I want to welcome all of you to Kirk of the Plains. It's good to be here on this Lord's Day and to worship Him. Uh, if you're visiting with us, whether that's here in person or, or via the live stream, we want to especially welcome you. And uh, if you're watching via the live stream, we want to let you know that we have some resources on our website, KOTP for Kirk of the Plains, KOTP.org. Um, uh, we have an online bulletin and uh, sermon sheets for the kids, uh, different things like that. But also on that website, we have a visitor card or a guest card, we call it on the website. And we encourage you to, to fill that out and send it to us if you're visiting with us for the first time. And that's even true if you're with us uh, this morning in person as well. Uh, we're cutting down on things that we're passing to each other, so we no longer have our welcome register or we're not passing the offering. We just have that located in the central area where you can uh, give your tithes and your offerings as you come in or as you leave. So uh, please, uh, we encourage you to take advantage of those things. We also want to thank everybody for signing up and letting us uh, know if you're coming or not. It's, uh, it's hard to express on Sunday mornings uh, sort of what a task that is to try to fit together all the pieces of the puzzle. We were going to have a baptism this morning, uh, but unfortunately um, somebody in the family got sick and so we had to cancel that, but we would have actually had a packed house if uh, the baptism had taken place. So just little things like that make a big difference. So it really means a lot to us if you're able to let us know uh, on Thursdays that you're coming and just uh, either sending us a text or uh, signing up on Facebook, either one. We appreciate that very much. Uh, this morning, uh, as you can tell, our air conditioning is on the fritz, and we apologize. We are working on getting that fixed, and hopefully that this will be the last uh, warm Sunday, and hopefully next Sunday will be cooler, but we'll wait and see. Uh, this morning, we do have a, a, a sort of a special treat. Uh, last summer, Ben Franks was our intern here at Kirk of the Plains, and I think it was a very profitable time for him as he's in seminary to have that opportunity to be in school. And, and to be taught and learn and also to work in a church setting as well. And uh, so it's good to have Ben back with us. And as a matter of fact, this morning, he's going to be bringing us the Word of God. And so we'll be very uh, encouraged by his exhortation this morning from Romans chapter 12 that we'll have later on in the worship service. But it's, uh, it's good to be back together as God's people and to worship Him. And that's, that's our focus, you know, is, is to come before the Lord and to be in His presence and to uh, exalt His name. So this morning, let's just take a few moments and, and let's just bow our heads. I know it's been a busy week, a lot of things been going on. And let's just take a time to be silent and to focus on the Lord as we prepare to come into His presence as a congregation to worship with Him. Please bow with me. stand if you would as we hear our call to worship from Psalm 47. This is God's word to us as his people. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. Let's lift our voices this morning as we sing ye servants of God your master proclaimed. Thank you. 
bow with me this morning, if you would. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and give praise to your name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you sit enthroned in heaven above. And Lord, as we come this morning, there is many things that have been going on this week, things in the news that is disturbing, things, Lord, that could draw our focus and attention away. Lord, even things that could cause us to worry and to fret. But we pray this morning that as we enter your presence, that you might open our eyes and remind us of the mighty ruler that you are, that all things are under your sovereign care and protection. And Lord, I pray that as we come today, that our burdens may be lifted. Lord, that we may rest and worship and glorify your name. It is in your name that we pray these things. Amen. This morning, as we affirm our faith together, we've been using the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we've started out by looking at the character of God and who He is, but also then looking at His works, which is creation and providence. Now, providence is a word that we don't use as much as has been used in, in years past. And so this morning, as we uh, start our affirmation of faith together, let's let me ask you that question. What are... God's works of providence. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. What is God's providence towards the angels? God, by His providence, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrevocably to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory, and establish the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all at his pleasure in the administrations of his power, mercy, and justice. Amen. You may be seated. morning as we turn to God's Word, we'll do so first of all from the Old Testament in Exodus 21, Exodus 21, and we've been sort of following the Israelites in, in their campaign as God led them out of Egypt, and He's brought them into the wilderness, and He's begun to give them His laws, and last week we looked at the laws that He gave them about slaves, but let us pick up at Exodus 21 verses uh, 12 through 32. So let us give attention to God's Word. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. 
Uh, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as a woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is a harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Thus ends the reading of God's word. As we, we read that, I hope you are hearing the, the value that God places upon human life. I know we oftentimes think of abortion as being the issue that talks about the sanctity of human life, but there's much more that goes with that subject than what might first entail, and we've read so in God's Word. This morning, as we continue to worship, we've come before the Lord to worship and to praise Him, to, to exalt His name, but now we come to confess our sins. So please bow with me, if you would, as we bow before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could gather in this place today to worship you. But Lord, as we, we come, we know that we do not come into your presence with, with pure hearts, Lord, that we have sinned against you. Forgive us, Lord, for our anxiety and the worry that we have harbored this week. Though our needs have always been met by you, we, we fear losing what we already have. And we don't trust you to provide us with all that we need, be that money or jobs or spouses or security or other things that we need. Some of us even are already anxious about this week ahead with its needs, even though we haven't even seen yet what these needs are. We live in constant fear that, that you do not really care deeply enough for us or that our sins will cause you to abandon us. Then we hear, Lord, the, the daily news of all the turmoil that's going on in our country, and we become even more fearful and wonder if we will survive all of this as a nation. But God, it, it doesn't take the nightly news to uh, tempt us with such worry and fear and anxiety. It, it may be even a failed test or a lost job or a betrayal by a friend, which is enough to cause us 
to question uh, your goodness. Instead of seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, we have fixed our eyes upon our own health, our own safety, our own comfort, and our own status. And yet, Lord, if we would come into the house of the Lord like Asaph did in the Psalms, we would be reminded that you have showed your deep love for us, Father, by sending your Son to earn your favor in our place. And you have not only redeemed us as your children, but you have adopted us as your sons with all of the benefits. And you have called us precious in your sight. Lord, please forgive us for being anxious, for worrying and acting so fearful. And Lord, instead, we pray that we might rest in you, to trust in you, Lord, knowing that you not only love us, but you will give us all things that are for our good. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. As we come this morning to confess our sins to the Lord, we know that He is a God who forgives. And we have looked at a number of passages in the past that talk about God's forgiveness. But I want to remind us this morning from Luke's Gospel that Jesus has the power to forgive sins too as well. And in Luke 5, 23, we read, which is easy, this is Jesus speaking, he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so this morning, if you are here, you may not feel very forgiven, you may Satan may be tempting you, putting thoughts in your minds to think, how could God love you? How could He forgive you? I want you to know that your Savior has the power to forgive, and we can trust in His promise and in His character. And so let's stand once again and sing of God's amazing grace as we continue to worship the Lord this morning.
Bibles, if you would, and turn to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. We, Jesus has been speaking a, a series of parables, and now we're going to look at the parable of the tenants. Hear now God's word. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone that was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Amen. Thus sends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come today and we just thank you so much for your wonderful means of grace that you have given to us. Lord, that you uh, allow us to, to read your word, that you have given us uh, your very words in a book that we could read and meditate and to be reminded. God, we are so easily of people who forget. And so, Lord, it, it is very much the case that we are prone to worry and to fret. Uh, God, to, to sometimes think that we have to handle things in our lives because we forget, Lord, that, that you are, are greater, that you love us so much. And we forget the great depth of your love for your people. And so we thank you as we come, Lord, to be reminded of, of who you are and how you work amongst your church. Lord, we are so thankful this week for, for watching over us and protecting us uh, physically and spiritually. Uh, Lord, we know that there are circumstances that have happened this week that we can't recount. Uh, we wouldn't have time, Lord, to, to talk about all the many things uh, that, that you have done to care for your people. And yet, Lord, there are probably many things uh, ways that we were tempted, ways, Lord, that Satan sought to cause us to stumble, in which you have shown us your grace, and you have protected, and you have cared, and you have watched over us. And we want to thank you so much, Jesus, 
that you sit upon your throne and that you intercede on behalf of your people. Lord, we come to you today, Lord, to recognize that the world in which we live is a mess. And, and even in our own country, we see things spiraling out of control. We read these kind of things or see these kind of things, Lord, on the news all the time in other parts of the world. And yet we never think about these things happening here at home. And so we pray, God, that we might keep our eyes upon you, even in the midst of uncertainty uh, in the world around us, that we would understand that you are our strong tower and that we as the righteous can run to you and we are safe and we can trust in you. But Lord, I pray that we would have more than just peace. I also pray, Lord, that we would be salt and light in these times. Uh, we pray, God, that as we interact with other people, whether it be at work, whether it be over social media, whether it be as we're talking to our neighbors, as we go to check the mail, that in all these things, God, that we might be uh, an encouragement and speak the truth and, and be people of, of graciousness and, and kindness to others around us. Lord, we continue to pray for the small businesses, especially in our community, and just during these economic difficult times. Uh, Father, we pray that you would sustain them and, and provide what they need to be able to stay open. Lord, we do pray for our country, for our government, uh, for those who have been victims of, of riots and the pandemic, those who have lost loved ones. And we just pray, God, that you would give them grace. Lord, we do pray this morning for the Johnsons. And uh, I know how disappointing it is when they were expecting to have their daughter Priscilla baptized to, to wake up to sickness in their own household. And we just pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to them and, and would care for them. Uh, Lord, be with us this week as we uh, face it, that we might do so in your strength. God, your word tells us to honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your produce. And so, Lord, as we come this morning and we give our gifts, uh, our tithes, and our offerings to you, we, we pray that you would receive them as, as these first fruits that we are giving to you to praise you, Lord, for your wonderful uh, sustenance and, and provision for our lives. Uh, we just thank you, Lord, for that and pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand. We could. Well, you know what? You can remain seated, actually. And let's sing the Gloria Patria. Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. 
We're going to be looking this morning really just at verse 12 of this chapter. It's a very short verse, but I hope as you'll come to see a very precious verse. Uh, but we'll read beginning in verse 1 to get uh, a bit more of the context. So Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 16 is what we'll read together this morning. The Apostle Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let's ask His blessing in our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege that it is to worship together. Uh, we have felt the lack of that these past months and are grateful that you've opened uh, doors for us to, to be together. And uh, pray that you would bless us now, that you would meet with us in your word by your spirit. We pray that you would uh, encourage uh, all who are gathered here as well as those who are uh, joining us from a distance. And pray that you would help us, Lord, to see Christ clearly and to show Christ clearly in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote a little article called, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? And in that article, he, he tells an interesting and I think a very timely and relevant story. Uh, he tells us about a, an officer in the U.S. Army who was out in some great city out west at a time, Warfield says, of intense excitement and rioting. And the streets of the city he was in were just completely overrun by, by crowds of people, and chaos was everywhere, and everyone seemed to be in turmoil. But as this officer was walking down the street of this city one day, 
He looks and he sees a stranger who in the midst of all the chaos is completely calm, completely composed. And it was such a striking contrast to everything that was going on around that as the stranger passed by, the officer kind of turned to look at him. And as he did that, he saw that the stranger had done the same thing. He had turned to kind of look at the officer and they find themselves staring each other in the face and the man walks up to the officer and without saying anything else, just thumps his finger in his chest and says, what is the chief end of man? Which is the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And kids, some of you may know the answer. The, the officer was a bit surprised, but he replied. He said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The stranger smiled and stuck his hand out and said, I could tell you were a catechism man. The officer said, I was thinking the same thing about you. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could share stories like that today? That there could be something about how we carry ourselves, something about how we live, something about how we look that just marked us as believers in Jesus Christ, that marked us as Christians. And in a day like ours, especially, where there's so much panic, there's so much chaos, there's so much fear, wouldn't it be wonderful if our lives were marked out as different from the world? But that raises the question, doesn't it? What, what, what is it that should mark us as different? What is it that should mark us as followers of Christ? How can we walk in a way that will gain the attention of the unbelieving world? There are obviously a lot of passages we could look at to answer that question, but, but one of my favorites is found in, in the verse we just read, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. It, you'll remember that uh, this whole chapter, Romans 12, is really designed to demonstrate what a gospel-shaped life looks like. If you remember what Paul has been doing in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters is this grand tour of Christian theology. He talks about who God is and who man is and our need of salvation and what Christ has accomplished in salvation and how he has brought together a church not only of the Jewish people but of Jews and Gentiles from, from across the world. And after giving us this grand tour of theology, in Romans 12 he turns to ask, so what? How does all of that theology filter down into our lives? And so chapter 12 is really kind of digging into Paul's application of his teaching. And in verses 9 through 21 specifically, Paul is unpacking what it means to be a Christian. And he does that by just piling up all these commands, all these imperatives. Uh, you may actually have a heading in your Bible that says something over these verses like the mark of the Christian or, or the mark of Christianity. And so today we want to look at just three of those commands, which come to us in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Those are the three things we want to consider together this morning. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So let's start with that first command. Rejoice in hope. What does that mean? Well, the key to understanding this command is to, to get our heads around what the Bible means when it talks about hope. What is hope? Well, we use the word hope all the time, don't we? Uh, but when we use the word, we usually mean uh, something like wish or desire. So if we're talking after the service and I say, yeah, I really hope I get a promotion next year. Or we just bought this used car and I'm hoping it'll last for a couple of years till we can get something nicer. 
But what I'm communicating is, uh, I really want this to happen. It'd be nice if it happened, but I don't know if it will or not. It's something desirable, but, but certainly not something that's certain. But of course, that's not what the Bible means when it uses that word hope. In this context, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not just talking about something that we, we want to happen. It's talking about something that will happen. It's not just about a desire. It's talking about really a, a confident expectation. That's how we could define biblical hope. It's a confident expectation. It's something that we look forward to with absolute confidence and absolute certainty. So what is it that we are called to hope for? Well, Paul doesn't really tell us in this verse, does he? He just says, rejoice in hope. And I think the reason why he can kind of move so quickly here is because he's actually unpacked what we hope for and what hope is quite a bit earlier in the book. If you remember back to Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about hope. L listen to what he says in verses 22 through 25 of Romans 8. Paul writes, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now listen to this. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now notice that Paul mentions both hope and patience right next to each other, as he does in our passage we're looking at today. And There's a lot going on in these verses we just read, but, but just notice two of the things that Paul says we hope for as Christians. First, he, he says that we hope for the redemption of creation. Paul looks around at all the suffering, all the evil in the world, the viruses, the tornadoes, the pollution, the injustices, and he reminds us that we have hope. That is, we have a confident expectation that God will put all things to right in the end. Paul says, God will fix all that is broken in our world. That's the first thing that we hope for as Christians. And secondly, he says that we hope for our adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. So, so notice there are two sides to this hope, aren't there? On the one hand, we have a hope that is cosmic and universal, the redemption of the world from sin and corruption. That's what we hope for. And on the other hand, we have a hope that's personal and specific. The redemption of our bodies and our souls from sin and corruption and death. So when Paul talks about hope, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that's what we hope for. We're hoping for the day when everything will be set right. The day when everything will be made new. The day when sin and sorrow and suffering and disease and the very fallenness of our world is dealt with once and for all. We are hoping for a renewed humanity that dwells in a renewed creation for the glory of God and the good of His church. And Paul says in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in that hope. We're called to look to the future with a confident expectation that that is what is coming. That's what Paul's talking about. 
when he speaks about hope. But of course, that's not what we experience right now, is it? Just look around you. As you read the headlines every day, as you see the latest national crisis unfurl, do you see a renewed and redeemed world? Or do you see chaos and confusion? As you get older, and all of us are getting older, would you look at your body and say, oh, it's been perfectly redeemed? Or are we reminded every day that sin and sickness and sorrow are part and parcel of being human? Even as we sit here this morning, it's so wonderful to worship together, and yet we have to be together and apart because we don't want to give each other some sickness that might cause harm or death. Our bodies are frail. Our bodies are weak. We feel the lack of all that is held out for us in this hope. We simply don't see the fulfillment of what it is that we hope for. But Paul says, that's the point. That's why we call it hope. If you have what you are hoping for, by definition, it's not hope. Hope is what we do not yet see. And I think that's why Paul adds a second command here. He says, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Let's look at that second command together. Be patient in tribulation. Uh, the word that's used here for tribulation has the idea of being pressed or pressured by something. So it could be very broad. It, it could talk about uh, difficult circumstances. It could be loneliness. It could be sickness. It could be persecution for your faith. And probably all of us as Christians, especially if you've been Christians for a while, have experienced all of those things at, at one time or another. Uh, the reality is, being a believer doesn't make life easy. In fact, Paul speaks of tribulations here as a normal part of the Christian life. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you happen to be one of the unfortunate few that goes through some suffering, here's how you handle it. He says, no, be patient in tribulation. Trials are coming. Here's how you conduct yourself. And we know that to be true not only from God's Word, but also from the world that we live in right now, right? If, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that in this world we will have trouble. It seems like in every area of our lives, in health, in politics, in economics, in social tensions and relationships, in everything, on all sides, we just see overwhelming examples of brokenness and suffering. And no doubt there are many other trials that uh, many of you are walking through that, that don't show up in the headlines. Some of you may be fighting with loneliness or depression. Some of you may long for a marriage or a child that God hasn't chosen to give you at this point. Some of you may be facing the, the loss of income or, or of a business. I'm sure all of us could, could mention trials and troubles that, that we are looking ahead at even this week. Those trials are real, Paul recognizes, but he doesn't let those define the Christian life. Remember a few minutes ago we said that, that one of the marks of the Christian is found in how they respond to those trials, how they respond to that suffering. And I think that point becomes clear when we, when we bring these two commands together. You see, the first command, rejoice in hope, is about how we are to respond to the prospect of the future. While the second command, be patient in tribulation, 
is about how we are to respond to the pain of the present. It's as if Paul is pointing out that, that there can be a gap that exists between what we hope for on the one hand and what we have on the other. What we hope for is the renewal and redemption of all things. What we hope for is freedom and justice and life and joy in our bodies and spirits. What we have is tribulations. We have trials. We have sufferings. But as Christians, we're called to respond to those trials with patience. But how do you do that? How, how do you be patient when there's very real pain that you're walking through right now? How can you rejoice in something that you don't even have yet? It's, it's a hope. Well, that brings us to Paul's third command. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. You see, these three commands are not separated from each other. They, they, they hold together as a, as a unit, as it were. And it's actually prayer that enables us both to rejoice in our future hope and to be patient in our present pain. Matthew Henry said, Prayer is a friend to hope and patience. Prayer is a friend to hope and patience. All three of these commands hold together. We can almost, you know, draw them in kind of a circle with one arrow leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing. Each one promotes the good of the other. Okay, here's how one commentator put it, talking about hope, patience, and prayer. He said, each of these exercises helps the other. If our hope of glory is so assured that it is a rejoicing hope, we shall find the spirit of patience and tribulation natural and easy. And since it is prayer which strengthens the faith that begets hope and lifts it up into an assured and joyful expectancy, and since our patience and tribulation is fed by this, it will be seen that all depends on our perseverance or being constant in prayer. Now, if you look at your life and you say, I, don't, I wouldn't describe myself as a hopeful person, and I wouldn't describe myself as a patient person, and I struggle to be disciplined in prayer, where do I start? If these three all kind of go around together, how do I, how do I hop on this merry-go-round? Well, in one sense, the, the place to begin is with prayer. Because prayer is, in one sense, the, the, the parent of hope, the parent of patience. We can describe a hopeful life as a praying life. We can describe a patient person as a praying person. And that means, to go back to the question we started with, what is it that marks you as a Christian? Well, we can answer that this way. A Christian man is a praying man. A Christian woman is a praying woman. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. And since pr prayer is so vital, it's important for us to spend some time looking at what the Bible has to say, both about the purpose of prayer and the practice of prayer. But let's start by looking at the purpose of prayer. What, what is prayer for? That's the question we have to answer. And I think Paul hints at the answer to this by, by play, placing this call to prayer alongside that command to have hope and to be patient. You see, put in this context, Paul's making clear that, that prayer 
is not about changing God, is it? It's about changing you. It's not about reshaping God's will. It's about reshaping our wills. In other words, we don't pray to set God straight. We pray to set ourselves straight. And that's actually one of the distinguishing marks of believing prayer. Worldly prayer thinks something like this. We can all be tempted to this. We think, okay, my life is a mess, and so I'm going to come to God and tell Him all the things I need so that He can give me what I have or can give me what I need for my good. But biblical prayer thinks like this. It says, my heart and life are a mess. And so I'm going to ask God to make me believe and feel and want what I should for His glory. You see the difference there? One attitude toward prayer is completely man-centered, while the other is gloriously God-centered. And all of this is wrapped up in the purpose of prayer. You see, prayer is designed by God's grace to pull you out of yourself. To get your own thoughts and fears and worries to be quiet. So that God's thoughts and God's commands and God's promises can ring out loud and clear in your life. So if you find yourself, or maybe I should say when you find yourself wrestling with doubt or discouragement, if you find yourself fighting fear or depression, one of the very best ways of combating those things is to get on your knees and pray. But that still leaves the question, how do we pray? What does the Bible tell us about the practice of prayer? Well, the Bible says a lot about this, but let's just limit ourselves to what we see in this verse, Romans 12, 12. Paul says, be constant in prayer. What does that mean, be constant? Well, the word that's used here has the idea of being devoted to prayer and of persisting in the discipline of prayer. So it takes into view both our attitude towards prayer as well as our action in prayer. So Paul's really getting at this question, how do you view prayer? How do you view prayer? Well, as you think about the answer to that question, here's a kind of a diagnostic question you can ask yourself. Do I treat prayer like exercising or like eating? That might sound like a weird question. Just track with me for a minute. Do I treat prayer like exercising or like eating? Well, what's the difference? Well, we all know that we should exercise. We know exercise is important. We know it's good for us. We may even want to do more of it. But uh, for many of us, exercises, practice, exercise, practically speaking, is kind of treated as an optional thing. If I have the time, if I have the energy, great. I can maybe exercise. But if not, it's, it's not really something we view as essential. And many of us may go pretty long stretches without a whole lot of exercise taking place. But that's not how we treat eating, is it? We treat eating as essential. Uh, you can't treat eating as an optional extra. If you don't eat, you will die. You will starve. And so all of us, and, and maybe some more than others even, uh, continue steadfastly in eating. You might even say we're devoted to it. We're constant in it. Well, what about prayer? Do you treat prayer like going to the gym? It's something that uh, you know you should do, but you don't get around to it as often as you'd like? Or do you treat it like your food? This is essential. 
And it's interesting that, that Jesus actually uses this image in John chapter 4 when he says, it is my food to do the will of God. And the will of God in this case would be to pray. And so Paul says, be constant in prayer. That's what Paul's getting at. It, it's an echo of what he says elsewhere when he tells us to be people who pray without ceasing. Being constant in prayer means we, we spend time praying. Here's what John Piper said about this uh, in a sermon he preached on this passage. He said, the word constant here doesn't mean that every minute you're praying. It, it means you persist in prayer. You persevere in it. You stay at it. You, you're devoted to it. You don't give up or slack off. Be habitual. In other words, Paul is calling all Christians to make prayer a regular, habitual, recurring, disciplined part of your life. Does that describe anything of your life of prayer? Is it regular? Is it habitual? Is it recurring? Is it disciplined? If you're like me, you'll find that it's frighteningly easy to fall into prayerlessness. In fact, it takes zero effort to neglect prayer. That just kind of happens. But being constant in prayer, as Paul commands, is actually a hugely difficult task. And part of the challenge of this comes from our schedules, from our agendas. Many of us have a lot going on. Many of us are wearing multiple hats. You, you may be a spouse, a parent, a child, a co-worker, an employer, a citizen. The, the list goes on and on. And, and so it's not easy, is it, to build our lives around prayer when we have so many other things that are competing for our, our time, our energy, our attention. And so we, we let prayer slip between the cracks because we're just not sure how to fit it in. It's easy to sign off on the idea that prayer is important. I've never been in a church or met a Christian that would say prayer doesn't matter. We all know it's important. But every church I've been in and every Christian I've talked to has said prayer can be hard. And oftentimes because it's hard, it's left undone. It's neglected. But remember what we said a moment ago. Prayer is not an optional extra. It is what fuels our hope. It is what fuels our patience, which means if you remove prayer from its central place in your life, you will not be a hopeful person. You will be full of fear. You'll be full of doubt. You will be second-guessing God's will at every step and turn. If you're not a praying person, you will not be a patient person. You'll find yourself filled with, with anger, with anxiety, with frustration, with impatience. Have you ever wondered if your struggle to be hopeful is maybe really a result of a poor prayer life? Have you ever asked yourself if your impatience is maybe the fruit of a failure to pray? So what, what would it look like then for us as Christians to build our lives around prayer? What would it look like then for the members of, of this church, Kirk of the Plains, to be people who rejoice in hope? To be people who are patient in tribulation? Well, of course, the paradigmatic answer to that question is found in the life and ministry of Christ. And I think we see it especially in how Jesus carried himself in his suffering on the cross. You see, Jesus shows us by His life and sacrifice what it means 
to rejoice in hope. What it means to be patient in tribulation. And what it means to be constant in prayer. Just think of how Christ carried himself as he, as he marched toward the cross. Even as he's approaching a level of suffering and shame that we can scarcely imagine, he did so rejoicing. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 says. It tells us that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in the very next verse, their author draws a line between Christ's conduct and our conduct when it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Jesus rejoiced in hope. Think of how Christ carried himself in the suffering of the cross itself. As he was marched from one mock trial to the next, being accused of one false charge after another, he was able to bear it patiently and willingly. When they accused and mocked him, he was quiet. When they flogged and flayed him, he endured. When they pushed thorns into his brow and his hands were pierced with nails, he bore it all. Jesus was patient tribulation. And think of how Christ began and ended those sufferings. He did it with prayer. The night that he was going to be betrayed, he knew what was coming. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did he do? He prayed. He wrestled with God in the garden and through tears of blood found the strength in prayer to face the hellish torments of the cross with hope and with patience. And after he had walked through all this suffering, all this shame, what were the final words of Christ before he died? They were a prayer. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. From Gethsemane to Golgotha, Jesus was constant in prayer. Now Jesus is more than our example. He is our hope. He is uh, the one to whom we pray. He walks with us in our trials and in our tribulations. But Jesus is not less than our example. And as Hebrews 12 reminds us, we should consider Him who has rejoiced in hope. And consider Him who has been patient in tribulation. And consider Him who has been constant in prayer. That's what it looks like to obey these commands that Paul lays before us. And when we are able, by God's grace, to obey these imperatives, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer, we're not just being marked as Christians, we are modeling Christ's likeness to a watching world. When we look around this world and we see all the divisions, all the hatred, we see the riots and the injustices that fill our streets, it becomes undeniably clear that what this world needs is Jesus. They need Christ. So where will they find Him? Where can your neighbors and your relatives and your co-workers and the people on your Facebook feed see Christ? Will they see something of Him in you? Will they see a person who rejoices in hope? Will they see a person who is patient in tribulation? 
will they see a person who is constant in prayer. How you and I live, how we respond, especially to suffering, how we respond to our circumstances, to our tribulations, should be different from the way the world responds. The world responds to these things with frustration and despair. But we're called to respond with patience and hope. And friends, God especially uses the power of prayer to give us the patience and the hope that we need to endure. And He shows us what that looks like in the life of Christ. And so we have a unique opportunity in this moment, in this place in our culture and in our history to be different. We have a unique opportunity to show the world where our confidence lies. And so as we close out this worship service together, let me encourage you in the Lord to meditate this week as individuals, as a family, on the commands which Paul gives to us today. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Amen. Please join me in a time of silent meditation as we think on all that we have heard today.
we encourage you uh, after the worship service to, to make your way out to the sidewalk and give you plenty of space for social distancing and, and to not only visit with one another, but just in those times that we talk to one another and share what is going on our, on each other's lives, we get an opportunity to know how to pray for one another, how to encourage one another as well. So we hope that you won't rush off, but, but stick around and, and visit afterwards. I receive now God's blessing, His benediction upon you from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Praise God.